Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Spring has sprung here uh, in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Today we are getting back to our Foundations in Oncology Pharmacy series by talking about one of our bread and butter agents, etoposide. Uh, we're not talking about etoposide phosphate, so don't confuse those if you look this up in a drug information app or website. Etoposide, the conventional non-etoposide phosphate. So aliases, VP16, uh, which is short for VP-16-213, which was the name in, in clinical study before it, it got uh, used in practice. Brand name in America, Vespid, or Vepicid, sorry. My dyslexia kicking in again. All right, so... Uh, this drug has a, an interesting history and kind of a, a long history to go through, which I think will be the most fun part of uh, the podcast. So there are a set of compounds called pedophilotoxins, which are toxins from pedophilum uh, peltatum, which is the, uh, the botanical, botanical? the botanical name, um, the, the, the official name for the mayapple plant, uh, commonly known as the American mandrake or wild mandrake. And then etoposide is actually an epipedophilotoxin, epipedophilotoxin, one of the funner words to say in the English language. And that is a, epipedophilotoxins are semi-synthetic derivatives of pedophilotoxins. So the history starts with pedophilotoxin. So there's a really nice, uh, fun article called The Clinical Pharmacology of Etoposide written by Maurice uh, L. Slevin uh, that's published in Cancer uh, in 1991, I want to say. Yeah, Cancer, Cancer, 1991, that describes kind of the history uh, of pedophilotoxin use in medicine. So there's uh, an English book from 900, circa 900, circa 950, called The Leech Book of Bald, which sounds like something out of uh, Harry Potter. Um, so anyway, um, that's the earliest known instance of pedophilotoxins described in literature. Uh, and that book records the treatment of cancer with roots of wild chervil, which, which had pedophilotoxins in it. Uh, and then there, uh, in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute in 1954, there is uh, a review written about uh, pedophilin. Uh, which was, uh, I guess, a mixture of a lot of pedophilotoxins. Talks about uh, all the ways that, that natives in the Himalayas and the Americans use this. So um, there are reports in 1800 of being used as an emetic. Makes sense to get people to, to vomit. Uh, pedophilum resin in 1820 uh, was, was written about as being used to treat syphilis cough or uh, scrofula which was uh, basically a type of lymphadenopathy that people now think was tuberculosis. In 1820, that got it listed in the United States Pharmacopeia as uh, a, a type of substance that could be used. Um, there are also reports of it being used by, by natives as a mortal poison, in quotes, is how it's described in the literature, a mortal poison to kill people. Um, in 1861, pedophilin uh, is described as being used to, to treat skin cancer. Uh, and the mandrake root in the 1940s being used for testicular cancer. Uh, in 1942, curing genital warts. Um, and it was included in one of the original um, formulations of Carter's liver, Little Liver Pills, which was a patent medicine that uh, people just made on their own and sold uh, 
you know, uh, kind of the, the uh, where we get the term uh, a snake oil salesman, this type of stuff, which was used in 1945 for, quote, everything. Um, and then later, Carter's Little Liver Pills was changed to be mostly bisacodyl, which did have uh, an actual treatment. There is um, a, um, a, a book written by a Russian uh, author in 1966 is when it was published in and the USSR, and it was set in 1955. The book is called, the English translation is Cancer Ward, and it talks about uh, one of the characters in the book uh, basically taking a mandrake plant and, and using the root to uh, create his own podophyllin extract uh, used to treat his seminoma testicular cancer. And that's described in the book, and it's supposed to be semi-autobiographical. Um, so there is a long-standing history of substances from the mayapple or mandrake plant having some sort of, of medicinal use or purported use. Uh, and then so finally, you know, the scientists do what they do, uh, as we've seen with other drugs derived from natural substances, other plant alkaloids like paclitaxel or uh, the anti-tumor antibiotics similar to, to doxers. They get, uh, we figure out a way to make it in bulk in the laboratory. It gets tested. So this starts, etoposide was one of the more promising ones. Uh, there's also teniposide uh, as well. Uh, so etoposide enters clinical trials around 1973. And if if you PubMed etoposide it, and there's a way in, in PubMed you can limit to the year 1982, you'll see tons and tons of publications about etoposide for this cancer, that cancer in 1982. It gets FDA approved in 1983. Now this is a great year for me because I was born in 1983. I was born in January of 1983. Etoposide gets approved in November uh, on the 10th of 1983 when I was about nine months old. Uh, the same month, we also get cyclosporin, the non-modified formulation, uh, sandamine, which you should never use anymore. Uh, and just as a side note, if you have an older provider order entry system and one of your physicians tries to enter cyclosporin, uh, sometimes the default will be sandamine, and then you gotta change it to neural or gengraf. Uh, I digress. Uh, also, same month, besides cyclosporin and etoposide, we also got atricurium uh, as, a, uh, as a paralytic approved by the FDA. So an interesting history. So it gets approved in 1983 and, <clears throat> you know, pretty quickly enters clinical practice. Um, there is, uh, you know, a nice article uh, written by uh, Larry Einhorn uh, from IU in, uh, what year is this, uh, about the treatment of testicular cancer. Uh, and this was written in 1982 before etoposide comes out, describing his experience using it as one of the few agents at that time that had activity in testicular cancer in patients uh, who were refractory to cisplatin. So etoposide, as we, as we move into our mechanism of action, if you were to be asked this on rounds, uh, you would probably say it's a TOPE2, a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor. And it's probably more accurate to describe it as a topoisomerase 2 poison. Well, let's talk topoisomerase for a second. So there's topoisomerase 1, topoisomerase 2. They're both involved in DNA replication, but not really the replication part, more of the preparation for replication. So if you think of our cell cycle, this is going to be, uh, you know, around, uh, you know, just around the S phase, not actually the synthesis of, of, uh, of DNA. So imagine... Uh, Hold up, imagine that you're holding a, a piece of, or a, a rubber band. Um, now don't do this if you're driving, keep one hand on the wheel, but imagine you're holding up a rubber band and just twist it. And twist it, you know, a couple revolutions and you're going to find that you have a double helix, right? And DNA is a double helix. Um, 
and that takes up some space. There's tension in it if you pull it back and forth. But now keep twisting, 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 and eventually you'll notice that this rubber band begins to fold in on itself. And that's how DNA has to be stored because you got, you know, lots and lots of lines and lines of genetic code that have to be stored in a systematic way. Uh, and this allows uh, that to happen. Um, well, now if you if you keep twisting that, you'll notice that your fingers start to the distance between your fingers gets shorter as the rubber band starts to kink. And if you try and pull this, you'll notice you can't. Uh, and with a rubber band, it may not work so well. But do it with, uh, you know, the charger of your um, of your phone, of your mobile phone, your smartphone. If you make that into a loop, twist it real, real tight. You'll notice as it starts to shrink and kick up, you can't pull it back. And that's because uh, it, it kind of gets knotted there. So what topoisomerase does is cut either one or two strands of DNA, allows it to unwind one revolution, and then re-ligate it. Topoisomerase 1 cuts one strand of DNA, and this is easy to remember. Topoisomerase 2 cuts two strands of DNA. So what uh, etoposide does is works as a topoisomerase 2 poison and it binds to the poison um, and then uh, covalently uh, is the thought causes uh, basically the enzyme to stay um, after so the, the enzyme will cut the two strands and then the poison kind of paralyzes it right there for lack of a better word it stabilizes it uh, to the bound DNA that creates a double strand break and if that double strand break persists for long enough you'll get G2S around the, the border of the G2S phase of the cell cycle, you'll get cell cycle arrest and then apoptosis. So as you might expect, this is a cell cycle specific agent, so it works specifically during that part of the cell cycle. And what early studies showed in the laboratory is that if etoposide quickly left the, the cell, that that double strand break quickly would be reformed and there would be no apoptosis for the cell, which is one of the reasons that you have to give the drug multiple times. You wanna have etoposide around for a long period of time so those double strand breaks persist leading to apoptosis. Uh, so that's how etoposide works. Um, it is got a kind of convoluted way it leaves the body. It's metabolized by CYP3A4, CYP3A5. It also is conjugated with uh, glutathione and undergoes glucuronidation. Uh, and then those metabolites are clarabrinally. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, 50% excreted unchanged in the urine and is also highly protein bound. So what this ends up meaning practically and again, this is big picture. Don't take this and, and make decisions based off of it uh, with regards to patients. But basically what this means is if you have just hepatic dysfunction or just renal dysfunction, you're probably okay using etoposide. Uh, the worst case scenario would be hepatic dysfunction and renal dysfunction in the setting of a low albumin because uh, the drug is highly protein bound. So if you have a low albumin, you'll have a higher free fraction of etoposide. Uh, which usually would be okay because a higher free fraction means the drug would then be cleared faster through both the liver and excreting the kidneys. Uh, but if those organs aren't working, not going to work so well. So the worst type of patient potentially to use etoposide on with a targeted cancer would be a low albumin, uh, messed up liver, and messed up kidneys. We use etoposide a lot. Uh, so its original approval in 83 was for small cell lung cancer and for testicular cancer. So you're probably familiar with the BEP regimen, bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin for testicular cancer, or EP, which is doesn't have bleomycin, just etoposide and cisplatin. Uh, and that dose is 100 milligrams per meter squared IV daily for five days. 
uh, for germ cell tumors. So again, you're giving it multiple days for about five days. Uh, the drug has about a six hour half-life, so the, the, the drug's there most of the time. Remember, those double-strand breaks have to persist for a good period of time for those cancer cells to, to undergo epoptosis. Um, for small cell lung cancer, uh, it could be, it has activity in non-small cell lung cancer too, but it's not used a whole lot. But for small cell lung cancer, you're looking at doses of 80 to 120 milligrams per meter squared per day for three doses for most regimens. Uh, it's also active in lymphomas, both Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So if you take uh, RCHOP and substitute etoposide for doxorubicin, uh, or CEOP, as it's sometimes called, uh, for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, there's also RICE, which is the ICE regimen, ifosfamide, carboplatin, and etoposide with rituximab for non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and then ICE with that rituximab for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Biacop, escalated Biacop for Hodgkin's lymphoma has etoposide, and then BEAM, which is a, uh, a hematopoietic stem cell transplant conditioning regimen contains high-dose etoposide as high doses of all those. Um, the drug does have some stability issues, um, so it, it does need to be fairly diluted. So usually you're talking about you know a dilution factor of um, uh, you know 0.2 micrograms per milliliter, 0.4 uh, for uh, uh, to get all the drug in. Um, now that stability is sometimes only 24 hours at that that um, that most concentrated form, and that can be problematic uh, with those really high doses in obese patients, and, and that's. Again, talk to your transplanters, but, but from my understanding, that's sometimes the rationale for etoposide phosphate uh, because it does have greater solubility because it is hard to get etoposide into solution. Uh, it's also got activity in ovarian cancer, uh, and I've seen it used as an oral agent for ovarian cancer. Um, so it is available orally, so there are etoposide tablets. There is a lot of both interpatient and intrapatient variability in absorption with oral etoposide. Now this is problematic because then the myelosuppression you see is erratic and it's a little, it's less predictable than with IV chemotherapy and probably uh, you would go most of your career and not see oral etoposide. Uh, especially now that we have some better options with ovarian cancer. Uh, along with its use and talking about stability, it needs to be given over at least 30 minutes, uh, probably 60 minutes, especially with larger doses. Uh, given the drug too fast can lead to uh, uh, to hypotension, which may be related to the drug, may be related to the amount of alcohol that is actually in the formulation to allow it to be soluble. Moving on to the toxicities, the dose-limiting toxicity of etoposide is myelosuppression. Uh, I think of it as moderately emetogenic, but if you look at most resources, it will actually be classified as lowly emetogenic, at least the IV formulation. Uh, oral um, etoposide is moderately emetogenic. Uh, you know, it can cause alopecia and mucositis. The mucositis is usually not that bad unless it's given in the high doses used for um, conditioning regimens for uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplants. Uh, as far as unique toxicities, you've got the hypotension if you give the drug too fast, and then secondary leukemias. And the secondary leukemias from epipodophyllotoxins or etoposide are unique. Uh, it's usually an AML, and it usually causes an MLL gene translocation or rearrangement uh, at 11q23 on, on that chromosome. Uh, and it often happens early, so within two years after treatment with etoposide. Uh, almost always within three, but usually around two years after treatment. And that's a, a very specific type of secondary leukemia. If you look in the cytogenetics of that, that bone marrow biopsy, and you see MLLG gene rearrangement or 11q23, 
It's a, you know, and they've had etoposide in the past, that's a secondary leukemia. Now this type of secondary leukemia is a little bit different than the type you would see with an alkylating agent, where alkylating agents, you know, those would happen say five years after treatment, and often will have uh, a secondary leukemia after alkylating agents or caused by alkylating agents uh, are going to have a, um, you know, a five-year period between treatment and also going to have a an MDS or myelodysplastic-like stage leading up to the AML. So if a patient gets, you know, RCOP and they've got cyclophosphamide, does an alkylator and toposide, and they get, you know, you could you could very very uh, hard test question would be which of the following drugs was most likely to cause their secondary leukemia that happened two years after RCOP. In that case, the answer would be etoposide, especially if it's got that MLL gene rearrangement. Etoposide, a drug that we use uh, an awful lot, uh, and a drug that's very active um, in several different malignancies, and a drug to know about. Foundational knowledge, uh, we would even say here at Oncofarm. Thanks for listening to this, uh, this week's podcast. Um, We'll have another one next week coming out as well. Um, if you like the podcast, uh, you tell other people about it. And if you don't, you know, just keep that to yourself. Um, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And you can find us on Instagram at OncoFarmPod as well. We're available uh, on the iTunes store where you can give us a five-star rating. Give us a good review. Tell us what you'd like to hear more about. Um, we're also available on Stitcher and in the Google Music Store. Uh, so thanks for listening, and remember, doses matter. Thank you.